This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Everything Compliance is now the award-winning Everything Compliance, having won the top talk show in podcasting award by W3. This episode of Everything Compliance, we dedicate the entire episode to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and its fallouts. Jonathan Marks takes a look at sanctions and the implications therefrom. Karen Woody considers corruption and the invasion. Matt Kelly looks at export controls. Jonathan Armstrong talks about the cybersecurity risks brought on by the war in the Ukraine. All this, shout-outs and rants, and more on this episode of Everything Compliance. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of Everything Compliance. Today, we're going to dedicate the entire episode to issues around the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So with that, we're going to start with Jonathan Armstrong. Jonathan, from where you sit in the United Kingdom, uh, perhaps what are you seeing? And uh, more pointedly, how do you see this playing out in the world of data privacy, data protection, and cybersecurity? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Well, it doesn't need saying, but I'll say it. Our thoughts and prayers are with the people of the Ukraine at this time. I've had the privilege of serving on a special committee of the Ukrainian Bar Association, and I've spoken with many lawyers there firsthand, and I understand their plight. I don't, I'm not in their shoes, so I don't feel it as much as they do. But um, it's very important that the rule of law is respected, and I know that many people on the ground in the Ukraine are doing a great self-sacrificial job uh, to make sure that the rule of law is respected. Uh, That being said, I think that we are in a state of war, and whenever we're in a state of physical war, then that spills over into the cyber arena. And that's certainly true on both sides here. Um, It's often the case, of course, that physical aggressors also rely on cyber aggression as well. And they also rely on cyber extortion. I think we've talked about it before, but the BBC, for example, have an excellent podcast called The Lazarus Heist, which looks at the way in which North Korean hackers have used, looks at the way in which North Korean hackers have used ransomware to raise money for missiles from the US to target at the US. And there's always a link, I think, between things like ransomware and cyber warfare. Putin, of course, promised to clamp down on ransomware gangs. I think that promise is 
undoubtedly pretty hollow now. Conti, the uh, most voluminous ransomware gang in terms of attacks and probably in terms of ransomware uh, collected, aligned themselves with Putin and said they would do all that they could to support the war. My intelligence tells me that the some members of the Conti gang weren't consulted on that and the Conti gang might splinter. But they're definitely creating chaos as cover for some of the activities that are going on. And they're definitely uh, extracting money from uh, businesses outside of Russia. And we always see in situations like this, just as in real war, in cyber war, innocent people and innocent corporations end up being collateral damage. We know, for example, that the uh, Conti gang attacked Ireland's health system. We know that led to cancelled operations. We know that led to deaths. And unfortunately, this situation is repeating itself uh, again. Uh, But at the same time, we also know that the Ukrainian nation are more robust than some others have been in the past. They've learned the lessons from the cyber attacks on Estonia, for example, and people in Estonia have done great work looking at things like cyber embassies and how do you move some of your digital assets away from your sovereign territory. And Ukraine, I think, has been more robust than might have been expected. They've also had members of the hacking community pitch in and help, like cyber vigilantes, if you like, notably the anonymous group, one of the sort of previously one of the most profound groups of nasties in the cyber world have pitched in to help Ukraine. They uh, they claim, for example, to have intercepted battle commands between assets, which they put onto YouTube for members of the uh, Ukrainian defense uh, to listen to. They claim to have taken over Russian TV stations, first of all, to play Ukrainian folk music, and secondly, to give messages on the true state of the war. But it's undoubtedly the fact that innocent targets will be hit. It's not a topic for levity. But if it were, I'll give you one example. There was a um, D-list TV celebrity called Keith Chegwin, And once upon a time, his uh, website was taken down because American college kids watched his site and he was thought to be an arm of the CIA as a result. We know that uh, organizations get caught up as collateral damage. And will they still be liable for a data breach? Well, yes, they will. We've seen evidence of regulators fining organizations when they have had a uh, data breach. We've seen evidence of class action lawyers suing organizations when data has been lost due to a cyber attack on their systems. So organizations are particularly vulnerable at this time. And the double whammy is that if you're an organization that relies on cyber insurance, it's highly unlikely that that cyber insurance will cover you. 
we've seen cyber insurers in the US particularly try and avoid uh, paying up for ransomware, saying that it uh, comes within something called a war exclusion clause. It's an act of war. We don't pay up for acts, uh, acts of war. Some of this litigation is continuing. But what we do know is that most insurers, as a response to this uh, litigation, have tightened up their war exclusion clauses to specifically include things like the uh, attacks that are going on. So first of all, businesses are at more risk than ever before. And secondly, there is much less opportunity to ensure that risk. And the third element where this is all really concerning is, of course, ransomware itself. We know that some corporations pay ransomware. They think that it's a cost of doing business, and they think that if they pay, the problem will go away. Well, first of all, it nearly never goes away. Secondly, particularly at this time, you're, um, let's just say, optimistic if you trust criminals to do what you expect them to do. The the sort of return rate, i.e. do you get your data back after a ransomware attack, diminishes. And most corporations are not in a position to go to Russia and knock on Conti's door if they pay the ransom and don't get their data back. And then additionally, there's the sanctions risk. The US, um, uh, the, the UK and others are looking at this money trail. They're looking at uh, sanctioning gangs. They're looking at sanctioning cyber currency exchanges along the way. So the sanctions risk has increased exponentially. So this is definitely a time for businesses to be on their guard. Training and awareness is obviously key. And training and awareness on these risks, not on yesterday's risks. Uh, making sure that you've put policies and procedures in place, like a 4i system. Have you patched your software? Has somebody checked that that patch has been applied? Obviously, making sure that you're ready to respond to these attacks when they come, and it's when, not if, for many corporations. And then, obviously, that whole thing about, you know, have a have a proper policy on ransomware payments make sure your suppliers are doing good things as well because when these attacks come a lot of them will be attacks on service providers to make sure that as many corporations as possible can go down in as short a time as possible so um so yeah i think it is a big issue i think you know to state the obvious, war is never good, and a cyber war is never good either. So, Jonathan, along the lines of sanctions, even if uh, a company wanted to pay ransomware, could they uh, effectively do so uh, or have the uh, cryptocurrency exchanges uh, shut themselves down from paying into Russia? I think probably. I mean, it's the, the difficulty you always get with things like ransomware is origin. Who is behind the ransomware attack? They don't obviously give you a physical address and tell you who they are. You can't do due diligence on them like you would with a supplier. And we have seen that, uh, you know, that people, for example, have been thinking they've been paying a run-of-the-mill ransomware gang and have most likely been paying North Korea instead. So history tells us that attribution for these attacks is often difficult. 
and and you've always got that danger of getting involved in uh, a sanctioned activity, particularly if the money is being routed through to Russia because of the number of Russian banks that are under sanctions as well. Matt, did you have a comment or question for Jonathan? Well, I, more of a comment than a question, but um, I did. Uh, I, I agree with everything Jonathan has just said, but it does strike me that a lot of this is about how to defend yourself. And we also have to remember there is a certain, um, I guess, offensive or cooperation uh, duty here as well that I'm starting to see, especially from the tech companies. There's a great example that uh, Microsoft, for example, which has excellent, excellent cybersecurity awareness and strength, they were almost immediately heavily involved in trying to intercept cybersecurity attacks they've seen within the last week, uh, where they approached the U.S. government and I think other governments in Europe to say this is about to start. I think they approached governments in Ukraine as well. Here's how we're going to intercept this on your behalf, including I know that there were several Microsoft employees who wound up getting emergency national security clearance in a matter of days. Usually that takes months mm -hmm. if it happens at all. Um, and it raises some questions. Compli companies will need to think about how are you going to cooperate with governments if you see an attack that's happening against you, against your clients, against your partners. Um, there's a certain, what are we going to do to not stick it to the hackers? That's not what I mean, but how do we become more emboldened in trying to prevent attacks that might be underway? If you're in tech, you're going to have to think about that because you might very well find yourself in that position. I think that's a great point. And I've had uh, the privilege of dealing with um, uh, people in government agencies in both the US and the UK recently when clients have been attacked. I've found them very sympathetic, very easy to work with understanding of the risks and of course it's important often to share what you're seeing so that they can get the global picture and and as you say matt we've also had people involved in in self-help initiatives you know uh when conti said that it was siding with putin people have um exposed uh, some of their source codes so that people can decrypt some of these uh, attacks as they're happening. So there are, you know, sheriffs out there as well as, um, as, well as criminals. Jonathan Marks, do you have a comment uh, as well? Yeah, I mean, I was going to talk about this, but it seems like it kind of just bleeds into this topic anyway. So there is guidance that's out there on the provisions of certain services related to requirements of U.S. sanctions laws that was issued by the DOJ back on January 12th of 2017. So I don't know if you've all referenced that or turned to that, but, you know, <clears throat> that's one of the things I was going to talk about today is that, you know, there there is special exceptions for all of this and that you really have to be very careful on what you're doing and how you're doing it. And, you know, before doing anything, I would certainly, certainly make sure that you reach out to a lawyer who has, you know, a great understanding of all of this and may be able to help guide through this. But there are, there is, there is guidance out there. And then, you know, Matt, you talked about, you know, dealing with, you know, some of these things, including if you have current investigations or things that are going on right now, you know, I think this guidance is a good start. And if you haven't seen it, you should probably reference it. But, um, you know, it's certainly impacting things that we're doing today and making us rethink some of the things that we're doing today just to make sure that, you know, we're not violating any any sanctions from uh, 
from 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 that particular perspective. All right. Well, let's move across the ocean uh, to Matt Kelly. Matt, what do you have for us today? Well, I've been thinking a bit about export controls and export control compliance and how that is going to become, I think, a more significant issue for a lot of businesses that might have been doing selling products into Russia. Uh, you know, the broad strategy of the Biden administration in Europe now and also Japan and Australia, Canada, you know, the West, uh, they are going to try to starve out the Russian military and economic capability over time by denying them access to Western components, technologies, goods that might be useful for military purposes. And now a lot of businesses will have to start thinking much more about who are our end use customers going to be? Do we have goods that are dual use where you might be able to sell something that could be repurposed for military technology? A good example of this would be um, smartphones or tablets that as of right now, if you can demonstrate that you only sell to Russian private individuals or Russian private companies, you could still sell to into the Russian market, uh, something like a smartphone or a laptop. But how are you going to do that? That's going to be the question I think companies will have to think through a lot more. You know, people who've been exposed to export control issues before, this is not going to be a new experience, but I think a lot of companies, it will be new for them. And their political and enforcement issues to think about that even if you have been exposed to export control before, you're really going to have to get it right now because the reputational and enforcement risk of being you know, the headline company caught selling advanced technology to Russian military, that's going to be a nightmare for your business and your board. They're going to be asking, how do we make sure that doesn't happen? So you're going to need to think much more about how do we develop these capabilities? Who are our end use customers? Um, what if you are using distributors who maybe it's perfectly fine to sell to them, but how are you going to assure that they're not selling into Russia? Um, how are you going to do all this when Russia doesn't use the Roman alphabet like English does? And you're going to need to think through language barriers. How are you going to read documents? Uh, how are you going to govern your distributors? One thing that struck me was I read about the troubles with distributors, and I know FCPA compliance people are going to be instinctively thinking, ugh, distributors, they're the worst. They're always the source of trouble. That, I mean, that's true, but if you had not been selling to government agencies in Russia, you might not necessarily have had a terribly high corruption risk in Russia in relative terms, but now you are going to have a much higher export control concern. So that's what you're going to have to grapple with and build that capability over the next several months. And it's intriguing, you know, when you see a lot of companies that are at the moment cutting off all business with Russia, they're pretty much admitting this is not going to be worth it. The juice is not worth the squeeze here. We have no idea how we're going to be able to implement this in the immediate term. Let's just not sell to Russia at all. It's good on the PR front. It's going to be good on the regulatory enforcement. And it's going to be the simplest way to obey export compliance is you just don't sell to Russia, period. That's why businesses like Boeing and Airbus and Microsoft 
And who else? Oracle and a lot of the energy businesses are just saying, nope, we're out at potentially significant cost to them, especially the energy businesses. Um, so that's the sort of thing that we will be need, need to be thinking about. And if there are any audit executives who are watching our webinar today, uh, I would definitely recommend that you all sit down with your compliance team and think about maybe we should re-audit our export control regime and systems, procedures, policies, do that right now. Your governance of distributors, audit all of your efforts to govern them and make sure they work. Uh, think about how you're going to get reports or assurances from your distributors and what are you going to tell the senior command in the boardroom or in the C-suite about this because they are going to worry about it. Um, that's I, probably going to be the most immediate impact for a lot of businesses. Um, that's that's what I've got at the moment, Tom. And I, I got a couple of other risks that I we could talk about too, but export controls is going to be the big thing. Mr. Armstrong, do you have a comment or question for Matt? Yeah, no, I think I think it's a great points that Matt made. Just uh, talking from the coal face, one thing I would watch out for is what you might call a reflagging of Russian assets. I think we're already seeing, uh, you know, R Russian uh, corporations try and rebrand, if you like. So traditionally, I know many of them have operated through Cypriot entities or Swiss entities, Luxembourgese entities. I'm seeing the Gulf uh, quite a lot. So it seems to be relatively easy to set up an operation in Dubai uh, and uh, seemingly to attempt to bypass sanctions that way. So it's not a simple task for compliance officers to go, Russia, no, tick. Um, they're going to have to look, I think, at the uh, history behind some of their suppliers and third parties as well and see if they were, uh, let's just say, a, a business that has recently changed location because that might get them into yeah. sanctions issues as well if the ultimate beneficial owner is still a Russian entity. You know, it's a good point that a lot of this will sound like, okay, that's due diligence, which it is. And you might be thinking, well, we've got some good experience with due diligence before. We'll have to apply it again. Uh, but it's absolutely true that they're going to reflag their assets. That's a wonderful phrase. I think it captures it. But the issue here is that with the FCPA, you're just trying to figure out who is this customer I'm selling to? Now, with export controls, you're also thinking about, and how will they use my product? That's different than FCPA compliance, and that is an extra level of complexity. And especially for some firms that if you're not terribly up on your FCPA compliance, maybe for some reason you had low corruption risk in Russia. I, I don't know how that's possible, but maybe it is. But now you know, the export control risks will be, I think, affecting a much wider pool of companies and you're going to have to think of two different variables at the same time. Who is this person? What are they going to do with my product? And that's going to be the issue. There's another piece of information that we don't talk about very often. And in the export control world, it's uh, something you should be doing. And that's an end user certificate. An end user certificate is what a distributor or a reseller is supposed to have signed saying who is the end user of these goods. Uh, that can actually be a very useful tool now um, 
for several reasons. Number one, whoever signs that end user certificate, whether it be your export control person or the uh, eventual customer, um, needs to be aware that you're signing that under the pains and penalties of perjury. Number two, that having that end user certificate is a critical piece of information that you can use to trace and track to whom uh, the equipment is gone. Um, it is uh, both name and company. So if you see similar names, you can use that. I recognize that this is a really into the weeds piece of information and data, but uh, this is a situation where you're really going to need to go into the weeds to try to comply with the sanctions levied by the Biden administration and the EU and uh, protect your company as well. So there's uh, some information out there that the anti-corruption compliance professional may not be aware of that they can use in this um, situation. So Karen Woody, Matt, could you say that again? We can barely hear you. I just wanted to say, I agree with all of the end use certificate stuff, but think of how am I going to store this? What is my documentation capability for all that? Because that's going to go way up to. Karen, uh, what have you been thinking about in connection with this crisis? My topic and the one I've been thinking about related to Russia and Ukraine is corruption and the role that corruption is playing in this conflict. And more importantly, I think the role that corruption has played leading up to this conflict. And just by way of personal story, when I started practicing law, the first case I was put on was a huge multinational uh, foreign corrupt practices act case. Um, we represented a, a global company that was headquartered in Germany and we were conducting an, an internal investigation that spanned the globe. And while I spent most of my time on that case in Asia and sort of in the, in the far east, um, a number of my colleagues were on every other continent. But the thing that stuck with me is that the one country where we couldn't complete the work, we ended up just you know throwing our hands up, was Russia. I mean, attorneys there had their hotel rooms bugged. They were followed at night. We ended up just turning back to the DOJ and saying, we can't, we can't finish this. This is actually you know, at our own sort of risk. And what was surprising to me then as a young attorney is that that wasn't super surprising to anyone. Um, and so what really was a takeaway for me, even though this was, you know, over 15 years ago, was that it was nearly a foregone conclusion that corruption was just the way of doing business in Russia. Uh, and that's something that has, has definitely stuck with me. And I had since cases in, in Russia since that time. Um, also usually about FCPA and um, sanctions issues. But it, it, it was something where that was just un, kind of understood of how, how things went. Um, and, you know, not to cast, you know, aspersions against Russian and the anti-corruption efforts they've made maybe since that time. But that was very much sort of this understood, uh, it felt understood that that was just, a, a, like I said, foregone conclusion. So what does that have to do actually with Ukraine and this current conflict? Um, well, I, I posit, as, as I think many others do, and that's that Russia's sort of deep-rooted corruption is one of the reasons Putin's been free to engage in these insidious and sort of inhumane acts that he's been doing now vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. Uh, and how he does that, he's relying on security services. He's relying on these, the corruption of uh, the oligarchy that he has um, set up around him. 
And those people are able to line his wallet, give him the, the means to sort of keep this culture of corruption going. And for a long time, it seems that the West has uh, made few, if any, sort of inroads into trying to sort of cut the head off of that snake. Um, I think this Ukraine uh, flare up, if that's that would be a euphemism, I think, at this point. But this actual war has made everyone wake up and realize how well-resourced Putin is and how much that will affect this entire conflict. And then all of you know these other countries that are going to be embroiled in it by virtue of the fact that, you know, these oligarchs have properties, yachts, all these things in other countries, then they're being protected that way. Um, and so this will get into the sanctions I know Jonathan's going to talk about. But we've seen, I think, some incredible movement in just the past few weeks from the United States, European Union, Canada, UK, all these nations um, announcing those sanctions cutting off Russians, um, the Russian banks from the, the SWIFT system um, and preventing things like uh, the Russian bank from drawing on foreign currency reserve. These, these are efforts that I think are trying to um, staunch the flow of resources, certainly. Um, and then we've also seen recently the Biden administration has announced the Transatlantic Task Force um, and the, I think it's called Klepto Capture, this idea of, of having an interagency law enforcement group to to weed out um, the oligarchs and sort of attempt to freeze assets of certain individuals and companies that are playing a role here. Um, but here, you know, I think there's work to be done. And I think there's thing, there are things in, in, in the pipeline that will assist, but I uh, would hope that they would be fast-tracked. Um, and in this place, I'm going to crib a little bit from the, you know, always interesting Matthew Stevenson and his global anti-corruption blog, which I think he's done a great job following this from the corruption standpoint. Uh, and he recently had a blog where he pointed out three really important measures that the United States can be doing to further crack down on this flow of finances. Um, and so one is, I think, an obvious one, and that is, again, leaning on this, the FinCEN's recent Corporate Transparency Act. Uh, which was enacted in a year ago in, in January 2021 uh, as part of the as part of the National Defense Authorization Act, um, but they uh, had it out for notice and comments. I think the comment period just closed in February on February 7th. Um, but as Matthew pointed out, I think it's a valid point that law, which requires most private companies to report who the true beneficial owners are to FinCEN. Um, and again, it, it's an attempt to try to curb money laundering, corruption, terrorist financing. Uh, all that is what's baked into this law. Like I said, the proposed rule just closed for comment. But what will be important to think about is how much, even after the final rule is um, effectuated, how soon this goes into effect, which could be up to maybe a year. So in, in terms of when people need to be complying with it. I mean, companies need to comply. So uh, I think the speed at which we can get people up to um, acknowledging, looking at who, again, the beneficial owners are of many of the, of, of in these industries is an important one. Um, so the role of, again, FinCEN, the tighter AML rules around this, certainly as it relates to the real estate sector, there's been a lot written on the luxury properties in New York and London that many of these oligarchs have. 
um, and thinking through again how we suss out who is owning this. Um, I know FinCEN just in October had announced the renewal of its geographic targeting orders, which requires um, U.S. title insurance companies to identify the actual natural persons behind shell companies that are buying all cash uh, all cash purchases of uh, real estate, usually residential real estate. Um, so uh, these, I think, are efforts that are, are pushing us uh, toward trying to, like I say, cut the head off the snake of how to make sure that these people aren't still able to fund Putin and some of these uh, things that are happening over in Russia. And so I think the efforts toward, again, beneficial ownership regulations, understanding, you know, who is, where this money is coming from, where it's going through. Um, there is this idea of maybe even having real estate brokers needing to file suspicious activity reports like SARS uh, as part of AML programs. All of these ideas, I think, are worth hearing out and ensuring that we have really robust compliance programs in the AML space uh, so that people and companies aren't unwittingly playing a hand in this, you know, global conflict by way of lining the pockets of those that are just doing harm. Um, and so that is what I've been thinking about and, and, and trying to wrestle with. Again, when people think about what can I do, what's our role here? I think there's a lot of ways that we might not know that we are sort of implicitly involved. And so getting to the root of things like this, where is this money going? Who's selling what are these shell companies, you know, who, who's actually owning this is, I think, an, an important step toward rooting out uh, a source of power uh, that Putin enjoys. So, Karen, uh, do you see a role for uh, the SEC in this or do you see more of the enforcement side coming from the Department of Justice and Treasury through the use of the AML law of 2020? That's a really good point. I mean, OFAC and FinCEN Treasury really does seem to be the uh, first mover on this, but there's no reason the SEC wouldn't also be involved. Obviously, through FCPA type of anti-corruption things, the SEC will be in the, in the room for those things as well. Um, but in terms of any companies listed on the exchanges or other places where the SEC has uh, jurisdiction over ADRs or sort of foreign listed companies and ensuring, you know, this idea of figuring out who owns them, um, double checking the disclosures of these uh, companies. Uh, Matt's pointing out that the SEC well, does exams looking at who these broker dealers are and requiring, again, more um, pressure on brokers of um, doing kind of a know your customer type analysis of figuring out, again, who they're assisting. I, I think there is definitely room and opportunity for the SEC to, to dial that up, I think they have that mandate authorized by Congress, and especially when we're thinking about um, this as related to uh, impacting markets and the volatility of markets and the idea of this being all obviously very systemic risk. I think it's, it's appropriate for the SEC to step into that space. Jonathan Marks, what do you have for us uh, in the area of uh, sanctions? Well, we talked to we talk, we keep talking a little bit about this. So, you know, as we you know, as our conversations sort of manifested themselves, it got me to thinking a little bit more. And Karen and Matt and, and Jonathan, I certainly appreciate all your comments. You know, there's a couple things that I wanted to mention first. I mean, everything that everybody said 
really, really, everyone should pause right now and take out your risk assessment, your enterprise-wide risk assessment, and blow on it and see if it still holds water. I mean, because this is, this to me, I mean, we're, you know, we had a pandemic that we all went through. There were certain things, you talk about the SEC, there were certain cases that came out as a result of that because people were hiding behind this cri that crisis a little bit. You know, this may be a crisis for some and not for others. So, you know, from a disclosure perspective, you know, I'm sure the SEC is going to be on full alert when it comes to this because they it's they have some recent pains relating to this. But, you know, overall, I mean, if internal audit is not talking to compliance and the general counsel's office right now, including the senior leadership and the board of directors with regards to the risks and the enterprise wide risks, I mean, Internal risks are one thing, but go enterprise-wide. You know, Matt had some great comments about export controls. Karen, you, you know, was talking about, um, you know, FCPA risk, anti-bribery, anti-corruption risks. Jonathan was talking about cyber risks and things like that. These are all real risks that most of us face on a regular and ongoing basis. And they may have been medium or low before, but they could have changed as a result of all this. And I think it's really incumbent upon us if we really buy into the regulatory guidance that's been issued over the past couple of years, talking about feedback and making sure that it's not a set it and forget it exercise to really take those things off, dust them and revisit every single one of those things that are on there. I mean, that's good governance all around. It, you know, it's not just good governance around, you know, export controls and, and other things. It's good governance in general from a risk management perspective to do this. And since the onus has really been placed on the board, you know, as a result of a lot of the cases that have come to pass, you know, over the past year and a half related to Caremark, and we've all realized what, you know, what's happening there. If you're a board of director today, it's the first question I'm asking, you know, is our risk assessment really where it should be? You know, and what, what are the things that we should be doing proactively to make sure that we're covering ourselves as an organization? And so, you know, that, that got me to think. With regards to sanctions, you know, getting back to all these sanctions, I think you really need to understand, you know, what the sanctions are all about. And again, use that to see how it would potentially impact your organization. You know, whether it's supply chain, whether it's cyber, whether it's bribery and corruption. You know, the other thing is, you know, that I keep thinking about is, you know, if you're doing services into Russia, how are you going to get paid? You know, how are you going to get paid for those services? You know, we all know about the SWIFT banking system and the severe, you know, connection between the U.S., you know, severing the, the U.S. financial um, systems for Russia's largest financial institutions, Surbank, and, you know, full blocking sanctions on Russia's second largest financial institution, VTB Bank. I mean, I could go on and on about all the sanctions that are out there. I think that's less important. I, you can all go read about them online. They're all listed there and they're, they're highlighted, you know, appropriately. Uh, when it comes to... But when it comes to really the impact on the organization, now is the time to do this. You, you can't wait, you know, and if, you, and if you're doing it now and you haven't done it already, you know, maybe shame on all of us. But, you know, I, I would really encourage everyone to go find your risk assessment or your risk assessments, you know, including AML and BSA, you know, to your point about KYC. You know, there are some programs out there we know that KIC, like for, from a broker and dealer perspective, as Matt, you know, poignantly it is said that the SEC Examination Division is looking at broker dealers just because of the compliance around maybe KYC. And we all know that some of the cases that have come forth, that KYC has been weak. But we also all know that AML BSA programs and some of the largest financial institutions over the years have been, you know, picked on and, and for good reason, because they're not effective. And so, you know, again, 
you know, this all boils down to risk at the end of the day and, and managing that risk effectively. And if this is not a wake up call for every chief compliance officer, chief audit director, chief financial officer and the board, I don't know what is. But getting back to sanctions and talking about the guidance that I mentioned before, going back to that January 12, 2017, um, you know, guidance on the provision for certain really, you know, certain services related to the requirements of you know the, the compliant services it's called the compliant services guidance you should definitely dust that off it may may, may not be a hundred percent appropriate in your situation but i would encourage you to read it and if you do have questions i would encourage you to reach out to your general counsel or to you know lawyers that really do understand this like tom and and karen because i'm sure that they could provide you with the requisite guidance but don't go at this alone it's just too important and the last thing you want to do is be on the other end of an ofac violation Matt, you have a comment or question for Jonathan? Well, just uh, two thoughts I wanted to put into the listeners' heads here. Uh, one is a story that I incur- encountered earlier today uh, where a Russian oil tanker was looking to dock and distribute its oil supplies into the world market, uh, in the, I think in the Baltic Sea. And... That is still legal right now. Let's remember that oil exports from Russia are still legal, except the dock workers at the docks said, we're not going to do that. We don't care what the sanctions are or are not. Uh, They just saw the political and moral sensibilities of this variable here, this situation, and they said, we're out. We're not going to do it. So for lack of any dock workers, uh, the Russian tanker then, I guess, had to sail off to parts unknown, and I don't know where they're going to unload their, their oil. That's a point that a lot of companies are also going to need to think about, especially if you have the more operations you have closer to Eastern Europe, the more you're going to have to think through, are our employees going to go along with anything that we might propose to do in Russia? Because a lot of Eastern Europeans I know want nothing to do with Russia anymore until when? Until like Putin is gone. And if that's 20 years, they are perfectly willing never to talk with or deal with Russia again for another 20 years. So think through what some of your political and moral issues are going to be with your workforce about something so inflammatory or divisive. I don't know what the adjective is. Uh, But the second point I wanted to get at is it so happens that for the last several months, I've been reading a few histories of World War II. And uh, one thought that has come to mind as I've been listening to things here is the mass mobilization that the West had against Germany during World War II, where everybody in the United States was involved in the war effort against the Nazis. We're eventually going to get to some sort of position like that against Russia, that there's going to be a mass mobilization of compliance and risk management efforts. All of it is going to be thinking through Russia risk, Russia risk, Russia risk. Uh, and Karen, even when she said that, you know, maybe we're going to have real estate brokers file suspicious activity reports, probably a lot of them are saying, I'm going to do what? Well, guys, if we have to do a mass mobilization of compliance efforts to contain Russia, that's what this is going to look like. Especially if this lasts for years, and it may well, companies will need to be thinking in more and more about how this is going to be an all pervasive back of the mind concern for the C-suite and the board what is our Russia risks and how are we going to deal with them? Mr. Armstrong, you have a comment or question as well. Yeah, I have live ship tracking for you. So the two vessels that Matt were referring to. 
<laughs> so there, uh, the the Boris Vilikinsky and the Fedor Litka, um, and they were actually turned away from the UK. And uh, it seems to be a concerted effort by Unison, the trade union, and Unison have said that they were behind it and that right. they are quote determined to support the Ukrainian people and uphold the sanctions imposed against Russia. So there was technically not a sanctions violation because the sanctions attached to the vessel, not the cargo, and the the ship seemed to sail under a Cypriot flag. But I can tell you, uh, as we speak, they look like they're headed to, I'd be guessing, Kaliningrad. They've gone up the North Sea, uh, past Holland, and and it looks like they're trying to get back to to a Russian port from what from what I can see. But that's a first for the podcast, isn't it? Live ship tracking. Yeah, and and Matt, you could download that app on iTunes or the Android Store. It find my um, super tanker. It's a it's an app. So, I mean, as as funny as this is, and I although I do applaud the dock workers for doing this. Even if dock workers were going to go along with this idea, what if the insurance carrier suddenly decides we're not going to insure that tanker? In which case, that tanker is not going to be allowed to dock or a plane won't be allowed to land. There's going to be any number of third parties who might suddenly say, we're out, we're done with Russia. And whatever transaction you might be having, that's going to grind to a halt. Uh, So that is yet another example of how this is going to wind up infiltrating all of your calculations about transactions with that country. Yeah, Matt, you make a good point. I had a conversation last night with a pilot who flies cargo uh, runs back and forth, and he said the same thing. His fear is that he gets there and he won't be able to land and there'll be nobody there to take the cargo off the plane. We're going to have a quick message from our sponsor and we'll be right back with shout outs and rants. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we are now to our uh, fan favorites, which of course is shout outs and rants. So we'll keep the same order. I'm relatively sure that my shout out will not be um, uh, taken by anyone else because I'm going to shout out to the Texas GOP. So with that, Mr. Armstrong, do you have a shout out and or rant for us? Yeah, only slightly trying to raise the mood slightly, my shout out is to Paddington Bear. So Paddington Bear was created in 1958 
But why was Paddington Bear created, you might ask? Well, it was created by Michael Bond, who'd seen the horrors of war. He actually tried to sign up, uh, but was rejected because he was too young when he was 17 in World War II. And nobody knows for certain, but he was either motivated by the uh, kinder transport or the uh, refugees exiting London uh, to get away from bombing in the Blitz. So uh, Paddington Bear was effectively a refugee, as many of us know, from darkest Peru. But it was meant to give hope to refugees everywhere. Paddington had a a note round his neck that said, please look after this bear. Thank you. Uh, as I said, it was to give hope particularly to refugee children that even if they're clumsy, even if they're at times annoying, even if they're not in the environment that they think they're going to be in, there are people out there who love them. That might be random strangers who take them in. It might be Mr. Gruber himself, a Hungarian Emma Gray, who's been through it all 60 years earlier. Um, a point of trivia, the first Paddington Bear doll uh, was given to Jeremy Clarkson. So it inspires hopes in some, but, uh, uh, but not in all. But why is it relevant to today? Well, first of all, there are many thousands, hundreds of thousands of children going through the same horrors that we had in the Second World War. So Paddington's there for them. And why do they know about Paddington if they're from Ukraine? Well, of course, because the Paddington movies were shown in the Ukraine. And who voiced those movies? Who was the voice of Paddington? Well, President Zelensky. And it's horrific, isn't it, that a nation expects a comedian to step up to the plate and offer leadership in a time like this, he shouldn't have had to, but he did. So my shout out is to Paddington and his Ukrainian uh, manifestation, President Zelensky. Well, I think we may have set the bar with that one, but we still have four more to go. So Matt, what do you have for us? Well, I, I, I won't meet that bar. That is an excellent one. Uh, so first, I want to sneak in a quick advertisement. Tom, trust me on this, that this won't be objectionable. But on Wednesday, March 23rd, Compliance Officers in Boston, if you are watching this, we will be having another Boston Compliance Meetup. The reason I am promoting it is that Radical Compliance has also turned this into a Ukraine charity relief fundraiser. So anybody who shows up, and you donate right there at the bar online, as far as I'm concerned, to either the International Rescue Committee or to Jose Andres Food Relief Programs. Radical Compliance will match your donations up to $50. It is on Wednesday, the 23rd. Find me online. I'll give you all the registration details. But uh, rants and raves. I'm Matt, I'm going to I'm going to stop you. I'm going to stop you right there because compl the Compliance Podcast Network will also match any donations. Well, Thank you very much. I will send you the receipts when we have all the documentation after that. Um, the shout out I want to give today is to a young Texas man named Jackson Reffitt, age 19. Uh, for those of you who do not know what he has done, Jason Reffitt 
had to testify in Washington, D.C. this week against his father, Guy Reffitt, age 50, who is the first January 6th insurrectionist to actually go to trial. He is being tried on insurrection charges in Washington, D.C. right now. Uh, Mr. Reffitt is a recruiter for the 3% group, which is one of those anti-government militia crackpot outfits out there. He was uh, very active in the January 6th uh, coup attempt. And his son, Jason Reffitt, at the age of 18 at the time, he dimed out his dad to the FBI, and now he is testifying against him. And I cannot imagine how personally difficult that must be when you are that young to do that against your father. So a shout out to Jason Reffitt, who is apparently the only one in that family who has a good sense of what the United States and loving your country is about, because he's the one defending it against this crackpot three percenter dad of his, who is one of the people making a mess of the country and trying to burn it down. We need more people like Jason Reffitt ready to step up and talk about what is right in America and then do the right thing. And he did. So hats off to him. Karen Woody. Uh, so my shout out today is a somber one that uh, goes along with the theme for today. Uh, and I want to shout out to the Ukrainian ambassador to the UN who could not be more in my mind of someone who speaks truth to power and a model of uh, just sort of upstanding uh, honor in, in the face of what is seems to be un speakable tragedy. And his speech on Monday at the UN uh, General Assembly, wherein he read the text messages of one of the Russian soldiers to his mother, um, and that soldier ended up uh, being killed, I thought was such an, like, an incredible and powerful moment to humanize this thing that we have been inundated with from you know talking heads and pundits and sort of nonstop news but I just thought, what a, what a powerful way to bring this home in, in a way that acknowledges that these are people and these are kids, a lot of these, a lot of these being Russian conscripts. Yeah, not to be a cynic here, but what powerful message it sends even to the, you know, the inefficacy of Putin and his um, strongman uh, sort of image that even his soldiers here seem to be not understanding what they're doing, not in favor of what they're doing. Um, and so, like I said, the person who I think is such a, uh, to me, such an Im incredible representative of this is, and I know I won't say his name probably right, but Sergei Kislytsia, unless I'm saying that wrong, maybe you guys know. Um, I, I just, I applaud, again, his uh, ability to have uh the wherewithal to, to humanize what's going on in a way that speaks to all of us without it's seeming overwrought the way I think many news reporters and, um, you know, journalists can, can overdo it. I think he is someone who, um, like I said, made us all stop in our tracks for a minute on Monday. And I appreciate, again, sort of reminding all of us what, what really is at stake here. Jonathan Marks, what do you have for us? I have a rant and a shout out. So I'm going to ride the horse a little bit. Um, Franklin Court Circuit Judge Thomas Wingate ordered Wednesday about uh, in, a, in a matter related to my favorite person, Bob Baffert, you know, and that whole big scandal there. So I, I don't understand any of this, but Judge Thomas uh, Wingate, if you're listening to the compliance 
uh, podcast here. You know, he's the guy's guilty. You know, throw the book at him and just be done with it. Get it off your docket. There's not even a question here. So if you have any questions, you can certainly call me. I'll leave you my number. And then my shout out goes to, it doesn't really rarely happen, um, AJ Leone from Lynnhurst High School in New Jersey is a autistic uh, kid that went to school there and was the basketball team manager. And they put him in at the end of the game. And, the, and, the, and this, this guy shot the last basket, it was a buzzer beater. And it was just one of those things. If, if you haven't watched the video yet, it's just unbelievable. And the coach there and the entire high school should be congratulated, you know, for really just embracing this young man and making him part of the of the school and, and just making some memorable moments for everyone. Really a heartwarming story. So I'm going to start out my shout out with an announcement, which is for the first time in my adult life, I voted in the Texas GOP primary. So I can no longer say... I've never voted in a GOP primary, Uh, but my shout out is to the Texas GOP party because uh, the party denied our corrupt attorney general, Ken Paxton, renomination, and he has to now go into a primary against George P. Bush. I didn't vote for George P. Bush. I voted for a former Texas Supreme Court justice who I know, Eva Guzman, but she didn't make the runoff. But Nevertheless, even the Texas GOP party realized the corrupt nature of Ken Paxton. He's still under criminal indictment. He has violated numerous Texas laws for which courts have uh, upheld against him, and he has refused to follow their orders. So I'm hoping that, and now I get to vote in the GOP runoff because I voted in the GOP primary. So I'll have two votes in the GOP primary for my adult life. So shout out to the Texas GOP party. Uh, They at least got that one right. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, thanks uh, so much for this. It's been a somewhat sombering uh, episode, but one that I think uh, everyone needed to uh, talk about and hopefully it will provide some insights to our listeners on some of the things they can and should do. So I look forward to uh, the next time we're together. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. If you're interested in the shoutouts and rants as a separate podcast, we now have that available as well, so you can check that out. The week of March 14th, I'm extraordinarily pleased to announce a new five-part podcast series on Taxman, the intersection of tax and compliance. If you've ever wondered about the role of tax and compliance, not simply tax compliance, but tax in compliance, this is the podcast series for you. I speak with noted tax expert Tracy Howe on a wide variety of issues such as tax and compliance, why tax needs a seat at the table, transfer pricing, supply chain, and other topics. I know you will find this podcast series very useful and actually entertaining. So please check out Taxman on the intersection of tax and compliance on the Compliance Podcast Network. Also, please check out my five-part podcast series, Trial of the Century, the Enron Trial with Lauren Steffi, which premiered in January. You can find it on the Compliance Podcast Network, iTunes, or wherever great podcasts are hosted. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.